For your consideration, Searchlight Pictures presents All of Us Strangers, a moving and intimate story of one man's journey to reconcile the past with his parents and hold on to a burgeoning romance in his future. Written and directed by Andrew Haig and starring Andrew Scott, Paul Mescal, Claire Foy, and Jamie Bell. Critics call All of Us Strangers extraordinary, soul-stirring, mysterious, and beautiful, and one of the very best films of the year. Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal deliver two of the year's best performances. What would you say if you had the chance to reconcile your past choices with loved ones? All of Us Strangers is in select theaters December 22nd. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill. I write about filmmaking craft for IndieWire. My guest today is Sir Ridley Scott, who has probably made as many truly great movies as any director currently working. Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, and The Martian, just to name a few. And that's not even mentioning my own personal favorite, The Counselor. His latest movie, Napoleon, is one of his best, an exciting and often very funny mix of large-scale spectacle and intimate human dramedy. I spoke with Ridley via Zoom while he was keeping up his typically productive pace, working on Gladiator 2 and prepping yet another movie. Sadly, he wouldn't divulge what that one is. Here's our conversation. Ridley, one of the things I loved about Napoleon is that you've got this epic spectacle with some of the most visceral battle sequences that you've ever directed, but you've also got this character study of this guy who is incredibly neurotic at the same time that he's conquering the world. And I'm curious for you, what was the starting point that got you interested in this? Was it this, the psychology or the spectacle or the history, or was it kind of all of it? It was actually all of a force aforementioned. You just answered your own question, but I'll answer it, re-answer it, okay? <laughs> the man was all-powerful, all-conquering, great politician, a great bureaucrat. There's a lot of French laws that are still Napoleonic. And so if he had it all, I'm not interested in people who have it all. I'm interested in people who have a fragile, a fragility to them. And the one thing that was seemed to be is better one of an expression, Achilles' heel, was this woman called Josephine. And so I began there exploring why and how such a powerful man can have such a vulnerable center. So what kinds of conversations were you having with the writer, David Scarpa, about all that? And what kind of research were the two of you doing to try to kind of unlock this guy and figure that dichotomy out. Napoleon's relatively unique in history, even as a military commander, even Charlemagne, even Alexander the Great. There are 400 books on Napoleon Bonaparte, 400. Where do you begin? Did I read them all? Are you kidding? No. I would leave that to the writer to decide which books he ought to start reading. But And you, you usually have those at the forefront that are the highly recommended ones. But when I do historical ideas and historical films, I can't get out of my mind that the events that occurred, for instance, Napoleon Bonaparte died in whatever year he died, on Santolina. When would the first book be done? First book could have been five years later, 10 years later. 10 years later is already getting slightly inaccurate. It's all based on research and people's accounts. The next book is then done Five years later, so already that writer is already reading the first book that's already kind of vulnerable and it hasn't quite got all the facts. So after 400 books, one wonders how accurate it all is. To answer the question. So you have to sit down there and 
and actually talk at length about what could have made this man tick of what seemed to be the common facts. Like he was a short man. He wasn't really, five foot seven was a kind of average height for those days, but it was just the evil British who keep doing cartoons with his little, making the man smaller by having everyone around it in the cartoons much larger. So you're playing with a little bit of truth and a lot of speculation. Well, and obviously with a movie like this, casting is key. So what led you to Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby as your choices for Napoleon and Josephine? Well, I'd worked with Joaquin before. And uh, I'd worked with him twice before, once as a producer, where Joaquin played a local lad in a place up near, well, we were way north in, um, I forget where we were, was it Alberta? And you're playing with the opposite Vince Vaughn who was a serial killer, and Joaquin had no idea that he was a serial killer. So it's one of those, if you like, indie comedies. It's pretty funny, directed by David Dobkin, right? And I was the producer. So that's when I first met Joaquin. He always stayed with me, and also his evolution through his career, where he started to do these quite startling character studies um, he, I always had, he always had my attention. So when I come to do Gladiator, I didn't think of the, you know, Adonis, God's Prince of Rome. I th instead thought, who is this guy who would most and be the best to portray a child who is a product of a delinquent father? I think he didn't see his father for 17 years at some point. There was no closest whatsoever with Marcus Aurelius, who had then, by, fairly late in his career when we were doing Gladiator, were kind of relatively accurate-ish. Marcus Aurelius is already getting, I think, the writings of Marcus Aurelius and the philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. I'm about to probably be, have my head shot off next week by actually saying this, but I feel that there's a degree of guilt in a lot of the philosophy. Guilt for what? Guilt for the clearly ruthless conquering of Europe by Marx Aurelius, who at a certain point must have reflected on all the bad things he had done. And therefore, the son, who was neglected, deeply neglected by Marx Aurelius, was the product of that, and therefore, essence was damaged goods. So when he is turned down in, in Gladiator, he says um, the best speech in the movie where he says, and what, older, and what older, wiser man will take my place? I've nearly fainted with emotion for that speech. And from that, I've never actually forgotten that moment because I think people, it's amazing how people are very, very uncomplicated about how they see a character and a plot. I thought I was designing with Joachim, of course, because. Joachim is a very vulnerable kind of person anyway. That's his good fortune as well. But I thought he was the most vulnerable person in the whole goddamn movie. Yeah, it was people towards the end said, oh, he was a bad guy. No, he wasn't. I couldn't get out of how, how neglected he was as a child. So that all stayed with me. And brilliant, of course, though Russell Crowe was, Joachim certainly was the equal to that You've got to have a good guy and you've got to have the equal bad guy. That's why the film is so powerful. 
So I always had him in mind, and I kept reflecting on Napoleon and looking carefully at Joachim's face, saying, he even looks like Bonaparte. And that's how it happened. And, well, it's interesting that you say that about him as the villain in Gladiator, because I just watched it again this weekend, and I was talking about what a great villain he was, and my wife said the same thing as you. She said, oh, I always felt sorry for him. Like, she, that's, she was... There you go. Your wife's much smarter than you are. (laughs) Well, that's for sure. Um, (laughs) How does the added 20 years of experience that both of you have since Gladiator alter the dynamics of your relationship? Did the two of you communicate and work together in similar ways you had before, or was this a different kind of experience? I was um, now more aware of, I would like to call it insecurity, but it's not insecurity. It's an incredible inquisitive questioning that he has to go through with who the character will be, but therefore, most of all, the person close to him to talk about that and agonize over is a director. And so this time I was ready for it. So it didn't come as a surprise. So we definitely agonized and waltzed with who this guy might be and where, how he would come out. My method of work is with always a minimal of four cameras. If it gets complicated, it can be 11 cameras. You have to know, don't try it if you're not used to it. You have to know what you're doing to know where the geography is going to be and how to place the cameras. So a four camera scene of a dialogue scene, what it does, it releases and frees up the actor or actors to, if as fortunate mistakes occur, I will never cut. I will keep running because the fortunate state can evolve into something magic. And I think they love that. So in a funny kind of way, each scene becomes a four, minimum four-camera situation with a four-camera audience. So whatever they're doing, even often not speaking, they're on. So I, they, and I think they love that. In a way, it gives them a freedom to do what he wants. Yeah, well, I think that explains why the movie works so well, because as I was watching it, I was thinking the scenes between uh, Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby, they're just so rich in behavioral detail, and they're often quite funny. And there are a lot of moments where there are things where I just thought these couldn't possibly have been planned or written. It just felt so spontaneous. Well, we decided early on to make the see this, you know, you know how action can get boring. Mm-hmm. Violence can get very boring very quick. Sex can get boring. And therefore, we decided to make all this sexual, sensual scenes amusing. By being amusing, they, I add sensuality to them, strangely enough. And while some of them are even comical, it's quite hilarious on some The scene where he crawls underneath the table at breakfast time is unplanned. We just did that and it stopped. So I had to put a tablecloth on so I could maximize on his, this, this shadow of this guy crawling underneath the table, grunting like a little pig. So it becomes comical. Well, now this whole method you have of working where you're using four cameras on up, some cinematographers say that they don't like to shoot with multiple cameras because they say it compromises the lighting, but Darius's lighting here is extremely beautiful. Let me, let me say something. That's bullshit. When you think of a scene, and I've done many, 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 many commercials before I did a film. I was a very good operator. I've done 2,000 commercials, right? Every commercial process went in, in the world I was in, I caught the wave of advertising, I think without question, it was an art form. There's some commercial advertising that was done was just magic. And I think without question, influenced the way feature films looked and were cut. We were a big influence on the way feature films changed 
over a period of about 10 years, right? So when you're doing that, there's a very simple thing. There's a key light, right? Don't care where the cameras are. There's a fucking key light. The key light should never change position. So some people will be front lit, some people will be side lit, and some people will be back lit. It ain't that complicated. But people overcomplicate by overthinking it. Well, you've had, you know, at this point, I think Darius has shot, you know, I think you've you've worked with him more than any other cinematographer, at least in your features. What is it about that partnership that works so well and that's been so integral to your recent work? I, I always get on with cameramen. I think with Darius, because my evolution into multi-cameras, I give an example. Black Hawk Down was 11 cameras all the time. That was Darius. That was... Uh, Slavomir Itziak from Poland. Slav says, I hate sunshine and I only work one camera. We end up 11 cameras in Morocco, so <laughs> it couldn't have been worse for him. But somehow he enjoyed it. Then I was fully into multi cameras at that point. And so by the time I got to Adaris, he just embraced it. And because of that, there were no complaints. And I love him for that because he can cope with, said, We're going to do this, ba, 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 in the morning. And he goes, okay. I said, how long? He said, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And, and we're moving. So, and Darius moved like lightning. That's, I adore him. Well, that maybe answers one of my other questions, which is how you're able to mount these massive productions on a budget and, and schedule. Because there have been very few filmmakers with your gift for staging large-scale action. I mean, David Lean did it, but it would take him years to make his films. And you're much more productive and prolific. I mean, this and this thing looked like it cost a half billion dollars to me. No, no, we shot this in 62 days. So this would normally be 110, some I think 130. And so the multi, but four cameras every day is four times faster. So a scene with four cameras scheduled to be at least all day will be finished at 11 o'clock. Because uh, two things happen. The speed of it, I discovered quite a long time ago that actors do not want 39 takes. And if you cast well, any actor you've really cast properly will have done his goddamn homework. So he'll have been doing what he thinks he wants to do at home, in front of the mirror, whatever he does, whatever makes him be able to rehearse efficiently, he'll do that. He'll arrive locked and loaded. The last thing he wants to do is hear me talk about the, the meaning of life before every take. He just wants to go. And so I let them say, you want to do it? Yeah. So we do a block rehearsal, no rehearsal, we shoot. And so in a funny kind of way, it frees them. So they feel free. And through that becomes a confidence and a partnership. And I try to have a partnership with actors as I work with them. Well, it, you know, to me, I just can't imagine even figuring out where you're going to place 11 cameras when you're doing one of these big battle scenes. Is What are your strategies for that, or is it just intuitive to you at this point, knowing where to put them? I do something rare, I think, uh, that no one else does. I personally, personally storyboard all my movies. And they aren't stick figures. I don't publish volumes with my stick figure drawings of ants and shit like that. <laughs> The, the, these could be comic strips. So this storyboard of Napoleon Bonaparte is probably two inches thick with eight frames on each page with close-up, medium shot, wide shot, vista, landscape shots. Because if I haven't been to the place, I'll imagine what it's going to be. So frequently, we'll, the Cajun hunter will look at the drawing and go, okay, well, I see what this is. And the film is already filmed in my head from by drawing. Right now, 
I'm drawing the film I will do next year. I'm storyboarding the film I'll do next year. I've used the downtime of the strike to quietly sit down and address the next script. So I'm already about 100 frames in on what I'm doing. Can you say what that movie is? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we, when we talked about Darius, I wanted to ask about another collaborator of yours because uh, you're working here with production designer Arthur Max, who, you know, in my opinion, is one of the great living production designers. I think he's like the top guy in his field. What kinds of conversations do the two of you have? I mean, I would imagine that as someone who is drawing all of your own frames and has a background in visual art, that the director and production designer relationship would be extremely important. No, on the country. Because I can really draw, I mean, seven years art school, I should be able to. Um, I can really draw, it's a very clear communication to this is what I'm looking at. And it's up to him to come back with something better. And my biggest compliment can be, you know, oh, fuck, I never thought of that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's meant to be a joke. <laughs> And then also you're working here with Janty Yates, who you work with a lot as costume designer. But I noticed there's a second costume designer credited, David Crossman, who I'm not familiar with. What was the division of labor between the two of them? And why did you use two costume designers? David's brought in by Janty and is a magical find, a magical talent. And so he took on all the Napoleonic army stuff, the uniform stuff, but most of all, what he did is he took a really good look at what the French army would look like in those days. We got pretty wrathy and pretty grubby. So he did all of that. And right now he's doing Gladiator with me right now. So he, he's got a uniquely vision of period armor. Whilst everything is accurate, um, I've never seen anything like it before. And also how grubby things got. So there's an art in being grubby, right? Yeah, well, you know, that's throughout the battle sequences, I would look around the frame and every actor you see, even off in the corners, is convincing. And not just because of their costumes, but they just look convincing doing these kind of antiquated military maneuvers. Well, amazing. I got kind of blown away by the, you know, there's a fabric called ticking. Ticking is usually fabric that's wished to be on pillows and and mattresses with stripes, right? I didn't realize there were so many striped trousers in the French army, and either because it was cheap or because it was just unique, and yet I suddenly saw these illustrations of the old drawings of the period, and sh there it was. I've never seen that before. The detail was marvelous. Well, and where do you find the background players for those scenes and what kind of preparation is involved in training them to become a convincing army? Well, you have a very good army. I've got an ex-army guy, instructor actually, what I give them, it's like boot camp. He takes them on boot camp with heavy baggage on. They'll be, if there's 60 pounds on the back, they will be wearing 60 pounds as they train. They are trained and you know, for instance, in the um, Battle of Waterloo, you see the, the infantry will, on an order will form into a square. So in a, in a way, the square becomes a fortress as the cavalry will swoop around them. In the actual battlefield, I think there are like 200 squares or more. And in each square, I think there's 300 men each square. So they, I did two actually alive, they were real, and therefore I could sample as they happened with these real guys, and then put 20 or 30 digitally on the battlefield. And that, that needs 
training, repetition. It's a, it's a little bit like formation dancing with rifles. Well, there are so many spectacular set pieces in this film. And I mean, I think my favorite was maybe the battle on the ice where you've got cannonballs blasting through and sending horses and men underwater. You know, it's, it's not easy to come up with an action sequence that hasn't been done before, but you did it here. I mean, talk a little bit about how you conceptualized and executed that scene. And funnily enough, the location where Napoleon's tents were and where he was standing in his vantage point, ironically, he was standing exactly in the part of the woodland where Marcus Aurelius was standing in Gladiator 1. I was using that woodland, which is a, a hillock, and a hillock looked down onto more, a bit of a plateau 200 feet below, and then more woods. So then I thought, okay, I need a high vantage point, but I need to have a huge area of flatness that will be covered in snow and therefore would hide the fact it was ice. So I combined digitally the hillock, the woods, and as I looked from there, I could look down below and digitally can remove everything else and put in an airfield that I shot nearby and outside of London, where we covered it. We covered the necessary in white, the rest is digital where I hid the fact that it was a lake. The only clue was when you see Napoleon, who did his own wrecking with a donkey getting firewood, that's true, and he studied the Austrian-Russian encampment around the lake. He took a shortcut of like a mile across the lake, but the journey by foot would be five miles. He knew where they were, and therefore from that he had chosen strategically a village on the edge of the lake, and where they were at Austerlitz, the village was stone. He deliberately stopped and he turfed out all the people from the village, told them to go, disappear, whatever, to, whatever happens to them. I'm not quite sure. I don't really want to know. He took over the stone village and put in and around it tents as a lure. And he, the lure that looked about 2,000 tents of French soldiers were being careless about their encampment and on the edge of a lake. We didn't know it was a lake, of course, and the stone village was actually gradually being made into a fortress. Of course, the Austro-Russian army would have scouts out all the time at night, and the, the Cossacks spotted them. The two Cossacks reported that Napoleon was five miles around the lake, five kilometers around the lake. One of the soldiers then comes to Napoleon and says, we have been spotted. And Napoleon says, good, have the men rest, we'll fight in the morning. He knew they were going to come. So he sat there as a lure, and as they approached him, well, they thought they would decimate his two to 4,000 troops. What they didn't know, they dug trenches for cannons, infantry, and in the woods behind them would be cavalry. So he lured them in, drove them onto the ice, and then used cannons. When you're shooting, some of those, those sequences or those images where you've got the cannonballs going through the ice and then you see the horses falling through the ice and all that kind of stuff, I mean, is that all just a, a blend of stunts and puppets and practical oh, yeah. effect and digital? Well, it's actual, sh it's, it's real shooting. Because I suddenly found, said, how fast does a cannonball go? He said, well, maybe 300K, 300 miles an hour. Said, well, I can see it. He said, that's right. So that's why you could suddenly, I've never seen cannonball before. They're only going 300 miles an hour. You can see it. So I had all the cannonballs coming in and landing on the ice. But then on top of that, how does a cannonball react when it hits water? It's the most wonderful effect of this impact followed by a white sheet of bubbles and power. You evolve 
these sequences creatively, you know? Yeah, it's, it's stunning imagery. I want to wrap up with a question about the editorial process because, you know, I think, again, the greatness of this movie really lies in the fact that Napoleon is a man of such contradictions and he's he's truly great in some ways and truly horrible or flawed in others. And I'm wondering how that informs the editorial process. What are the challenges that arise editing a movie like this when you're trying to strike the right balance of elements that you want to convey to the audience about this man? It better be in the footage. It better be on paper. You know, the hardest single thing to do is get it on paper. Once it's on paper, the rest is uh, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's more enjoyable when you haven't got it on paper and you're guessing every day, it becomes a real nightmare. That happens more often than you can possibly imagine. That's why a lot of films go over budget because they, they begin without having it on paper. They try and make it up as they go along. Never do that, rule one. Get it on paper before you say go. You know, it's a terrific movie, and it was really kind of interesting because I also recently revisited The Duelists, and obviously the scale is quite different, but in a way this felt to me a little bit like a bookend with your first film, you know, and it was interesting to see the way you had evolved as a filmmaker and how in some ways you're the same and in some ways you're very, very different. The only difference, The Duelist cost $800,000. Wow. Yeah. 800 grand, all in, all fees, all transportation, my crew of 48 people. So we did a lot with one camera, that's one camera. I had a little Arriflex with a chart with three lenses on, I'm the, I'm the operator. And I worked with a great lighting cameraman called Frank Tidy, who I discovered during commercials, who was actually a Rostrum cameraman. He used to do titles and things. And I saw he was using this wonderful light called a North Light. And to me, the North Light was the beginning of the first really beautiful soft light. There was two lights, there was a cone light. It all came from fashion photography. There's the cone light and there's north light. And they were the closest thing you can imagine to beautiful daylight. Daylight is the most beautiful light you can get. Daylight, daylight, daylight. Well, it's, uh, you know, again, it's a terrific movie and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. So I'll, uh, I'll let you get back to storyboarding your next one. No, I'm, I'm editing Gladiator. I'm glad editing the first 90 minutes of Gladiator right now. Oh, okay. Pretty good. Oh, great. It's good. It's going to be good. Good. All right. Thank you. Well, I hope you come back and talk with me about that one. All right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.